This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I'd love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Joe Pompeo about Blood and Ink. Joe is a correspondent at Vanity Fair who previously worked at publications including Politico and the New York Observer. His writing has also appeared in the New York Times, the Columbia Journalism Review, and many other outlets. He lives in Montclair, New Jersey, with his wife and children. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Welcome, Joe. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you. I'm so glad you're here to talk about Blood and Ink. And I'm happy to, to be here to talk about Blood and Ink. Well, let's start out with you giving me a quick synopsis for those that won't have read it yet. Yeah, so the really quick synopsis is this is a Roaring Twenties murder mystery about a prominent uh, minister who was murdered with his choir singer mistress in central New Jersey in 1922. Uh, you know, which set off a massive local scandal and also gigantic national media circus and a bewildering in- investigation into this double murder. It's a story with a lot of rich, eccentric characters. And it's also a story about the birth of uh, American tabloid media and American tabloid culture, which uh, was, was rising uh, at the same time in the early 1920s and ended up playing a direct role in sort of influencing the course of this case as it played out over you know four years. It's a complex mystery and there's a lot of twists and turns, but that's sort of the, the most basic bird's eye view uh, summary I think I can give. I was so curious to hear your quick summary because there are a lot of characters and there are a lot of storylines. And so I was like, how is he going to summarize all of this? I know it's, it's hard. and I always get tripped up. But doing a lot of these interviews, I think, I think I'm getting a little 
a little better at uh, giving the elevator pitch without just, you know, uh, recycling my, my, my jacket copy from the book. <laughs> yeah, you could just pull it out and read it. Yeah. And your book came out in September, timed with the 100th anniversary of the killings, correct? Yeah, so the book came out on September 13th, um, and the, the 100th anniversary of the murders was actually September 14th. They, they took place on September 14th, 1922. So it, it was uh, very lucky that I was able to you know, get this story ready for the centenary of this, of this crime. The bodies were found on September 16th, 1922. So I think that's kind of more, you know, that, I think that's kind of what the date that you'd probably use as the official, you know, it's the beginning of, of the story and the beginning of the mystery. But yeah, really, you know, my publication date was just a day off from the actual 100th anniversary of the day that th these two characters, Edward Hall and Eleanor Mills, were, were killed 100 years ago. That's kind of crazy you were able to time it that close. We were, you know, and originally... It kind of it kind of just worked out that way, you know. I, I started I started working on the book in the fall of 2018, and originally we were talking about publishing it you know, maybe in the spring of 2022 or summer 2022. But obviously, like everything got pushed back because of the pandemic, and you know, I think like every writer who had a book going <laughs> during that time got like an extension, and then publishing schedules were all backed up. So when we were finally, you know, getting close to, you know, finishing the manuscript and looking at a date, we were, we were pretty much right on schedule. It just, just kind of turned out to be a really, a really good stroke of luck. So let's start at the beginning, how you learned about this and then how you decided to write about it. Yeah. So I was, I was literally fishing for a, a story like this to, to do. You know, I'm a big fan of historical narrative nonfiction, especially historical true crime, dark historical history. And I caught up with a graduate school professor of mine around maybe September 2018. And I said, you know, I am, I'm looking to write a book in this genre. This, this professor had, um, she's a journalism historian at the Columbia Journalism School where I'd gone to graduate school. And when I had, had taken classes with her like 10 years earlier, we studied cases like, you know, uh, the murder of Helen Jewett or the Mary Rogers case. These like, you know, kind of like newspaper sensations from long ago. And I was really drawn to those types of stories. And I thought she'd be a good resource and might have some good ideas. So we started talking and, you know, she's mentioning all these different crimes and at one point mentioned the Hall Mills case um, down in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And I immediately, you know, my ears perked up because I'd gone to school uh, in New Brunswick. I went to Rutgers as an undergraduate. So I had this connection to the story right away. And I liked the sound of, of the name itself, Hall Mills, when she started describing, you know, the circumstances of the case, you know, it was like completely fascinating. Immediately, it was clear that it, this dovetailed closely with the rise of the tabloid newspapers in New York City. And between those two things, I just immediately, you know, saw the makings of, of a book, you know, kind of following those, those two threads. I'm always amazed that tabloid journalism was so old. Like if I think about it, I think of it the 70s, the 80s, which is just, mm -hmm. just my own not knowing. But it's fascinating to me that it truly is that old. And I think people, when they, when they use the word tabloid, I think that generally people just think of like, you know, down market newspapers or like gutter publications. And I think that, you know, even some like older newspapers, people might just colloquially refer to them as as tabloids, like the the yellow press of the early 1900s or the penny press of the Victorian era in, in, in America. But really, you know, the ta tabloid newspapers were born at the turn of the century in Britain with the Daily Mirror. 
And 20 years, it wasn't until about 20 years later, a little less than 20 years later in, in, in 1919, that this format came to America. So America's first tabloid newspaper, which is a, a smaller kind of handheld, you know, more magazine looking publication filled with photos and these gigantic headlines and all sorts of sensational news stories. I mean, that didn't really arrive until 1919. And that coincided, you know, with the, the, the 1920s, which was this decade full of sensations and full of crime and murder and, and scandal and also full of all sorts of trivial obsessions that people were drawn to, you know, after this dark period of, of, the, of the World War and, um, you know, the Spanish flu pandemic. Uh, so, I mean, it, it was really as much a product of the Roaring Twenties as the, as the subject matter it, it was covering about the Roaring Twenties. But, but, you know, it is a very old form and one that I think has continues today and also has taken a lot of different forms. The other thing that I thought was really interesting was that large photos were traced to tabloids because all newspapers have large photos today. So it was fascinating to me that large photos were something originally just associated with tabloids when that's something we see in all forms of news, especially with social media now. But even before that, you know, newspapers would have these very large photos. Yeah. And that was really not something that existed again until the Daily News came along in America. They were called picture papers at the time. They, you know, the tabloid newspaper, the word tabloid is derived from this British term, which referred to these compressed tablets, like medicine tablets that were, that were taken and, you know, something that was a format that was compressed. So the pages of a big newspaper are compressed into a tabloid form, but also the pictures. That was really the, the defining characteristic of the, of the ta early tabloid newspapers. This was the first time that a news product was giving as much importance to photography as it was to text. And actually, in fact, you know, I think that the early tabloid pioneers would probably say that photography was more important than text. And that was kind of, at the time, a sacrilegious notion. So something like the Daily News comes along and you have you know, these, these gigantic photographs, that was very new and very appealing to readers. Oh, absolutely. Because you can read and read and read, but when you see a photo, you completely visualize it and you see exactly what it looked like. Yeah, and I think especially with stories like like the Hall Mills case, you know, they have this murder with all of these these wild characters. You know, the tabloid press they they kind of shifted the emphasis to big personalities. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that case. So there are an incredible number of people. Like it took me a while to kind of get on board and and be able to separate everybody out. I can't even imagine the amount of research you must have done. Yeah, there's a lot of you know archival research. And I was able to access, fortunately, these things materialized uh, over the course of you know working on the book proposal, which was really the first year of my of my research. This just trove of the original um, witness statements and depositions and grand jury transcripts. I mean, several thousand pages in all of hundreds of people who were interviewed as witnesses for these cases, but also including the main cast of characters from my book. So you know, I had these long transcripts of interviews with prosecutors and detectives and things like that. I was able to, you know, hear people tell in their own words how they found the bodies, what, you know, how, how they turned this way, this way or that, like their movements, their thoughts. So there was a lot of really rich, amazing archival material that I, that I was fortunate enough to get possession of, but also just reading the newspaper coverage you know, it's not as much of a primary source as an actual transcription of an interview. But I mean, this was covered so closely in all the newspapers, and especially all the New, the New York newspapers. There was, you know, a, something like 10 New, New York newspapers alone 
at the time. So like the New York Times, I mean, they wrote so, so much about this case. You just go day by day and it's just, you know, these really long articles every single day. So I, I really went through, you know, every single day for the, the, the course of this investigation in 1922. I read like every single newspaper that was digitized on newspapers.com. I read the coverage. I compared that against, you know, the, the primary sources I had and, you know, it, 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 lots of other things too. And there's tons of, tons of stuff to really build out the story. Well, and it's the craziest story from the beginning. These two people are found clearly staged. And then the way the whole crime scene was handled, where all surrounding neighbors and people from many miles away drove in, trampled through it all, took souvenirs. I mean, it's just mind boggling to think about how it was done. Yeah, even by the standards of the day, you know, where, uh, you know, forensics was modern forensics was still in its, in its infancy, really. But, you know, even just the most basic things, there was no photographs taken. They kind of just let people trample through, you know, all the evidence at the crime scene and, and stomp around the bodies. There were no autopsies at first. The, the two victims were buried with just like kind of a cursory morgue report that the, that the coroner did. They didn't note like any of the real violence that had been committed on especially Eleanor Mills. Everything you could have done to like stymie your investigation and make it harder uh, to build a case down the line, they, they pretty much did. And I love some of the little tidbits that you included that weren't totally related to the case, but were related to the time period. Like patrolmen didn't have their own cars, so one of them had to rely on someone else, just a citizen, to get him to the scene of the crime. I mean, I was completely cracking up. Yeah, he waved down, uh, you know, a, a passing a, a motorist who who drove him to the crime scene. You know, there's all there's all sorts of, um, you know, the language of the day was was a little different. Some of the, the vocabulary they used, but yeah, that's that's a great example of you know, a little detail that, you know, you, you come across in just like reading some of, you know, the transcripts. I, this, this, this guy, his name was Edward Garrigan. And, you know, I was able to read his account in his own words of when he, you know, was kind of like told to go down into this field where these two bodies had turned up. And, you know, I was able to like, you know, follow his, his footsteps in his own words because I had access to these great uh, archival documents. And then the fact that the media getting involved is what really led to a revival of the case and some of the things you're now describing, like autopsies or looking more closely at some of the facts, that the media was the one who really got involved in the investigation and kind of spurred some of that along. The, yeah, the media, but specifically the tabloid media, and specifically as a result of this you know, kind of first tabloid circulation war that had developed in New York City. So just for some context, you know, we're talking about this, this investigation it began in 1922, throughout the fall of 1922, but there were no indictments at the time. It kind of fizzled out. And then in the intervening years between 1923 and 1926, as you know, there were these three tabloid newspapers came onto the scene in New York, each of them kind of had the Hall Mills case in the back of its mind and kind of like you know, decided they would try to revive it. But in 1926, it is the Daily Mirror where Phil Payne of the Daily News ends up. He sends reporters back down to New Brunswick and they do this investigation and put together this dossier and they bring it straight to the governor of New Jersey and the attorney general of New Jersey in the summer of 1926. And they get them to reopen the case. So, I mean, the, it really like the, the, the reopening of this case, the way it comes roaring back to life really was a direct result of this competition between these, these new tabloids that had sprouted up in New York City. And that is, I think that without that, it, it may have not come back to life at all very well. 
you know, so that is where I think that those two stories, the story of the birth of the tabloid culture in America and the Hall Mills murder mystery, that's really where they collide. And it's, it's, uh, you know, uh, definitely it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating, fascinating collision, I would say. It is. And then kind of the birth of true crime and our fascination with it as well. It's not the birth of true crime because there's crime, but it's the birth of the fascination with true crime. I think it's the birth. I mean, I think people are always drawn to stories like this, but I think that what I think this is the beginning of is, you know, a way in which stories like this, you know, true crime stories were covered explicitly in publications that were out to entertain readers and, and present present news like this in a way that was thrilling and, you know, and, and wasn't just going to like inform people, but also entertain them. I mean, that was the whole idea of the, of the tabloid press and Hearst Daily Mirror, when it, when it debuted, its slogan was, uh, it was, it was 90% entertainment, 10% information. So they really <laughs> emphasized, they really emphasized the entertainment side. And I think that that, again, that carries through to, to today in the way that we, you know, we are, we're drawn to stories like this. There's always an element where, People have died, oftentimes these horrible deaths, and you know there's something very voyeuristic and kind of unseemly about getting really obsessed with with cases like this. But people love mysteries. We've always been been drawn to stories like this, and frankly, you know, we are drawn to true crime today because it also entertains us. And that's what I was trying to say. Is obviously not the birth of true crime itself, but the way we ingest true crime and the way it is treated as entertainment versus just a story. Absolutely, I think that's exactly right. Well, did you hope to solve it when you began looking into it? You know, I didn't. I think that I think my agent and my editor both <laughs> both probably did, you know, because that would have been a great ending to a book. But I, you know, I came to where I, where I come down on 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 this in the end is that I think it's so and it's such an enduring story because it is unsolved. I think that, you know, readers of my book or people who have studied this crime, I think can probably form a pretty firm conclusion about who they who they think did it or what they think happened, but you can never know. And it's that yearning to know more, you know, wanting to know what, what you can't fully explain that I think really gives a story like this so much of its mystique. You want so bad to be able to, to you know, come to a, you know, firm, um, unequivocal conclusion and you can't. And, and I think it continues to draw you in. Well, I think that's exactly right. And it's old enough now that what kind of new details are going to come up at this point, though you did discover a ton of documents that had been hidden away for a very large amount of time. So maybe there'll be more documents like that. But most likely, the idea of it being solved is one that is not going to happen. I, I would say that's that's correct. I think there are people who are really um, enthralled by this crime who I think really want to solve it, there's like you know some active Facebook communities around this, and and people really do. They talk and they exchange theories, and they really are trying to find anything that could maybe shed some piece of light that that could maybe lead to a solution. I think there's a hope that maybe maybe a murder weapon could turn up, or maybe you know maybe something. But based on what actually exists in the historical record, and also the physical evidence that that is still housed today in the Somerset County Prosecutor's Office, it's I I, I don't see a way where you can. You know, I know if if you were able to test some of this physical evidence, what would you test it against? No murder weapon was found. You know, I think that that's one of the that's one of the bedeviling aspects of the case. There was not a murder weapon that was that was recovered, so we don't even have that. So what? How how can you really this this many years later? You know, even if there was the most advanced you know forensic techniques you could think of, I don't I don't know how you'd be able to to solve something that way. That would be so hard for me because I'm such a cut and dry person. I'd be like, I want to know who did it. 
But it sounds like you didn't even mind at the beginning. So it was okay with you to go through all of this and, and realize we're not going to know who did it. Yeah, I, I, I was I was kind of at peace with that from the beginning. And it's a really big, te- you know, there's a lot of pressure if the, if the, if selling this book meant like, well, you know, you have to solve it, then, you know, that's, that's a whole different, um, <laughs> you're like, I'd come up with some kind of solution. <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, all right, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll do a different book that, that has a, has an actual ending, but I, I think it worked out. And I think that in my epilogue, you know, I, I do grapple with all of the, the numerous theories about, um, how this crime may have been committed, who may have been responsible. And there are compelling theories that you, you can argue and, and really come to land on the one that you think, makes the most sense to you. Um, I think most people who, you know, study this crime and, or even just read the book, I feel like most people will align on, on, I don't know, I don't know who you think did it, but, um, uh, you know, it's, there's certainly like a number of possibilities and I, I, I hope that I was able to engage with all of them, um, in the epilogue to the story. You definitely did. And I was curious which one you finally came down on is the one you think is right. I don't think I really did. I think I just was like, okay, that's a possibility. Okay, that's a possibility. But it didn't seem like there was enough evidence to make sure that one person in particular was the suspect or the the perpetrator. Yeah, for me, it, I I think that it seems like the most plausible thing that happened was that the the family of the of the minister was involved. You know, this was a proud, wealthy. Victorian era sort of clan that you know, their honor was very um, important to them. And it is not implausible by any means to think that they would have tried to put a stop to this scandalous affair that was happening that everyone in town was, you know, knew was happening and that somehow things got out of control and escalated, you know, to such a degree that you had this, this, this gruesome murder. And I, you know, I don't think that I have an idea of who pulled the trigger but I do, and I think most people probably end up thinking that the the, the family of of the minister was involved, which is you know his his wife and her brothers, which seems the most likely. And they were so quirky too. So I mean, I think yes, you could definitely see where they would have done that. I think from everything you presented about her husband, it just didn't seem like he would have the wherewithal to be able to kill both of them like that, stage them, do all of that. He just didn't seem quite capable of that. I agree. And I think people who read the book, I think they will come to know Jim Mills as this sort of kind of feckless, sad sack of a guy, you know, who who is probably not at this point in his his deteriorated marriage with Eleanor Mills, probably maybe not even that concerned with what's going on. I mean, they had to have known he may have even welcomed some of the you know advantages that the proximity to this this wealthy family of the minister brought brought the Mills family. Um but I, I, I agree. He comes across as kind of like a, a, a dimwit, even to an extent, too. And, and you know, aside from the question of whether or not, you know, based on his alibi, when people saw him on the night of the murders, he could have actually made it out to this field and back in time. I do think there's a question of whether or not he even had it in him. Yeah, that's what I think too. Yeah. Well, let's quickly talk about the title. Blood and ink. The blood is obviously refers to the murder, and the ink obviously refers to the other arc of the story, which is the newspapers. I didn't come up with the title. My my fantastic literary agent came up with the title of the book. Uh, I think it has a nice ring to it, uh, but I think it captures, like I said, the two the two dual arcs of 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 the story, which is you know this fascinating murder mystery, and then also this rollicking story of the creation of the American tabloids. And I love the photos. I love the way. The cover is done and the kind of art deco rim, all of it together is just, it's, it's a great package. Yeah. And I think they always try to, I think with books like this, you know, they always 
they try to capture like, you know, the devil in the white city kind of appeal. I think a lot of the covers end up trying to trying to mimic that. I think that that's a great kind of like a, a really dark kind of gothic looking visual was definitely fitting for this book. It's interesting because the cover of the, of the book, the characters that are on it, um, it's actually a picture of Jim Mills and their daughter, Charlotte Mills, who's, who's an, another great character we haven't even gotten to touch on. It's a, it's a really haunting photo of them kind of looking at each other. They look troubled. She was a 16 year old at the time of the murders and she became, she, she kind of adopted the flapper lifestyle. She kind of has that look about her. So I think that her appearance on the cover of the book kind of evokes the time period in that way. But there's not a lot of great photographs to work with of, of, of either the victims or the accused of the, the heiress, Frances Hall. So, and, you know, we ended up going with that photo, even though it's not, you know, the most, most uh, main characters in the, in the book, because it was just such a great haunting shot. It is. And then also the shot of all the men in the field after you read about how crazy it was when they found the people and how everything was trampled. Yeah, I think that conveys to, I think that just gives you a sense of the murder scene, you know, out in this kind of rural setting, this abandoned farm. And it was, it was a place where, you know, even weeks and months after, after the crime scene was, was cleaned up, I mean, the, the, the crime scene became this sort of like country jamboree atmosphere. And, and, you know, people from all over different states would come just to kind of get a glimpse of the crime scene. People like hawked balloons and popcorn there. People put up, you know, local businesses put up signs, you know, advertising what they were selling. People came and they stripped the tree down to nothing. The crabapple tree with the victims were found beneath. I mean, it just became this little like, you know, this this sad little twigs coming out of the ground because people just wanted, you know, to take souvenirs away from the crime scene. I think that also speaks to this time in the 1920s where people were looking for fun. They had cars. They were able to, 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 to be more mobile. And this just became like a total a total spectacle. Um, and it was a way for people to go and have some fun on a, on a, on a Saturday afternoon, I guess, you know, literally murder tourism. I just think that is so crazy. It's so far outside my realm of comprehension. I just can't even fathom that. I'm like, they must've needed more to do. <laughs> that just seems like if I had some free time, that is not what I would go visit. Yeah, I guess at the time you have to you have to think about what people do have to do. I guess you know the movies are, are have you know there's now there's now movie theaters. The burlesque shows are still are still going, but you know in terms of entertainment, radio is not really a thing yet. Other than that, you have the newspapers, and I think people were following along this story in the newspapers every single day. It was it was you know it was keeping them hooked. And I think if you had the ability to go and actually go to the crime scene, that would have been very exciting. And same thing with the trial that eventually happened in 1926. I mean, to be in that courtroom was like the hottest ticket in town. Yeah, it's really crazy. Well, what have you read recently that you really liked? So I have two, I have two books that I'm going through right now. One is kind of like a, another recent release in the same genre, this historical true crime. That's American Demon by Daniel Stashower. I, I was a fan of Daniel Stashower from reading one of his earlier books about the Mary Rogers case in 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 mid nineteenth century New York. That is the the case that Edgar Allan Poe based one of his famous short stories on. And American Demon is is this guy's uh, new book, and it is about this serial killer in nineteen uh, thirties Cleveland and the famous Elliot Ness, who was the 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 public safety director at the time, and this kind of larger than life crime busting figure from history. So I'm I'm, I'm reading that. And then I have a really, a really obscure one for, for your listeners. Rachel Maddow has a new podcast out right now, and it's about this fascist plot in 1940s America. And there's this character in it named George Sylvester Vierick. 
And he was at the time a essentially a Nazi agent in the U.S., uh, a Nazi propagandist that had, you know, was working with members of, of Congress to, you know, get propaganda out to the American public. In any case, Rachel Maddow had mentioned in, in some interview about uh, the podcast that he had written much earlier in his life what is considered the first gay vampire novel. <laughs> so, and I, I I know Rachel a little because I had profiled her for Vanity Fair where I worked full time, and I was I was texting her. I said. I was so so fascinated by by this book. It's called the the, the House of the Vampire. Uh, I was like, should I read this? And she's like, oh my god, you have to. So I, you know, sure enough, I went on Amazon and bought you know one of these like four ninety nine copies that some random person you know just just put together. And yeah, it, it is a it's an early psychic vampire novel that takes place in the early nineteen hundreds in New York. It's more of a novella actually. But it's kind of like a I, you know I think with um, October and and fall and Halloween season, I, I kind of just plucked it out as a, a sort of a dark, a, a dark read consistent with the season, but it is an, an obscure story. So I thought I would just put that out there for a more, a more off the beaten path recommendation. When was it published? 1907. Okay. So it is really a lot older. It's a lot older. And I think the whole, I think that the, the whole gay vampire novel might be a little bit more of a subtext, but it's about this older writer who is like psychically, you know, vamping this younger writer and kind of stealing his ideas out of <laughs> out of his brain. So it's just kind of like weird, wild uh, story that the guy who wrote it eventually became this terrible uh, Nazi propagandist. So, <laughs> so it's like bad against him. But and you're hawking his books. <laughs> you know what? He's he's dead, and it's like uh, it's all in the public domain now. So some someone's making money off of it. That's that's. Uh, but it's not him. That's right. <laughs> Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining me today on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I really enjoyed Blood and Ink, and it was fun to talk about it with you. Thanks for having me. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And And we're we're the the Professional Professional Book Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading!